Genesis 2, 4 through 17 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray together. Lord, we love your word. God, we love you. And when you speak to us, we eagerly desire to hear what you have to say to us, God. So would you please remove distractions? God, would you remove from us the concerns of this world? God, the things that we are awaiting uh, the rest of today or the rest of this next week, God, would you set those things aside? God, the things that we eagerly desire that are not of you, would you set those things aside, strike them from our minds so that we can be single-minded, purity of heart, Lord, focusing solely on what you have to say to us and make us quick, Lord, to receive it, quick to respond to it, and quick to give you praise. God, we give you this time and ask that you would lead. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2013, NPR reported on a Japanese truck driver who was mistakenly switched at birth. It's a true story. He was born the eldest son of an incredibly wealthy, almost royal family in Japan, but he was raised in abject poverty, the youngest son of a single mother. He grew up on welfare he struggled to graduate high school while helping his single mom make ends meet, while his counterpart was raised in the finest neighborhoods, raised in the finest schools, given every privilege imaginable, and eventually became the president of a real estate firm. Now try, if you will, putting yourself in this man's shoes. Try to imagine being born into incredible wealth, and unlimited potential, but because of one person's mistake in a hospital, you were subjected to poverty and struggle until you were 60 years old. See, our passage describes a world that we were meant to know, but have never experienced. 
You and I were meant to know this world. We're meant to know Eden. We're meant to know the wealth and the privilege and the beauty and the potential. We've never experienced it. Instead of abundance and life, the world we live in is rife with struggle and scarcity and ultimately death. This is what we face every day of our lives. And so when we read about the paradise of Eden in the beginning, I believe that we were meant, that the author meant for us to experience a longing a kind of homesickness for this world that we were meant for, this life that we were meant to live, but never got the chance. It's not just a desire for things in our world to be different. It's not just a desire to see the way the world is and want them to be different than they are. Or it's not even an awareness that the world was meant to be something different. But like that Japanese truck driver in our text, we come face to face with the lives we were meant to live and yet never got the chance. That's what we're going to be talking about today. But first, we need a little bit of context. See, between verses 3 and 4, right? But for our passage today, there's a shift in the creation story. Something changes in the way the author is telling the story. See, throughout the first chapter, Moses is focusing on the author of Genesis. He's focusing on this grand cosmic creator God who is calling everything into existence, light out of darkness, sky and sea and land and and calling birds and fish and animals to to, to flourish in the earth. And so it's kind of this, this grand snapshot of everything taking place in the universe. But in this text, he zooms in on humanity He spends a whole chapter talking about the making of the cosmos, and now he spends a whole chapter talking about the making of humans. He zooms in, and it gets deeply personal, deeply intimate. And we not only get a closer look on how God makes the first human, but we get a closer look of God himself. See, the God who made the heavens and the earth, okay, this transcendent, all-powerful God is on the ground in Eden. He's, He's present in Eden. He makes himself known to the man. He makes himself known to Adam in his creation, and he makes himself known to us in the text. See, it may seem subtle, but I want us to read verse 4 again. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want us to, to look at those words, Lord God. Lord in all caps. See, in chapter 1, if you go back and read through Genesis 1, God is only referred to as God. The Hebrew word for that is Elohim. Elohim is just the generic word for God. But here in verse 4, we start seeing this word Lord in all capital letters. See, this is something that translators do to indicate to the reader that the word uh, being translated is actually... God's personal name, Yahweh. See, this is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses asked God's name, he said, who shall I say to the people is sending me? God said, I am who I am. Go to the people and tell them, I am has sent me to you. See, this Hebrew uh, word, I am, is the name Yahweh. 
And God says, this is the name that I am to be known by throughout every generation. And so why doesn't the text just say Yahweh? In the day that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. See, sometime during or after the exile of Israel, the name of God had fallen out of use for fear of breaking the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so the people out of such reverence for the name of God said, if we just never use the name, we can't possibly take it in vain. And so this tradition was created where the word uh, Lord, Adonai in Hebrew or Kurios in Greek was written into the text so that the reader would see that word and read Lord, but think Yahweh out of reverence for the name. And so in verse four, the author makes this transition from referring to God as Elohim, just God, any God, and he calls him Yahweh Elohim. This is significant for us because in our world, the word God is generic. And nobody knows what God you're talking about unless you give that God a name. And so God has given us a name. If you want a relationship with anyone, if you want to know someone, if you want to have a, a relationship with, with anyone, you have to know their name. Imagine, you know, if you will, that you are on a dating app and you meet someone on there and their name is just question marks. And for some reason, you're like, I'm intrigued. I will text this random enigma and find out something more about them. And you start texting them and you decide that you are going to meet with this person. And you show up and you're like, I just got to know, what's your name? And he just goes, shh. <laughs> exactly. That is a creeper. You have got to leave. You can't have a relationship with someone. Imagine the person, the person that you, you know, everyone has these people that you see at church every Sunday and you've had like 17 conversations with them and you're like, what's their name? And you start avoiding them. Not knowing their name actually interferes because if you're like me, you think that you're going to get into this conversation and they're just going to randomly go like, pop quiz, what's my name? And you're like, these are the things that keep me up at night. If you want a relationship with someone, you need to know their name. They have to know your name. And so God has given us his name. He is, I am, the God who exists. He's Yahweh. And throughout the Bible, this name will inspire worship among his people, and it will incite fear among the enemies of his people. But in our text... It's an indication of God's personal presence in the Garden of Eden and his desire for a personal presence in our lives. And so today, it's an invitation for us to experience the life that we were meant to live because the life that we were meant to live is a life in God's presence. This all-powerful and transcendent creator God is profoundly personal. The life that we were meant to live is a life in God's presence. God was personally present in the garden. 
He let himself be known, not only in name, but also in the way that he makes us. See, if you remember from the creation story in Genesis chapter one, when he makes the rest of the animals on day six, he says, let the earth bring forth. He uses his word, commands the animals into existence, but it's the earth that they are produced from. He uses his word and he calls them into existence. But in our text, in our text, God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's on the ground in Eden and he, he stoops down with his own hands and he picks up the dust of the earth and he starts forming the first human. He's like a potter with clay. God stooping down, getting his hands dirty, intimately, personally, intricately making this first human. And in a world today full of automation and and full of of machine manufacturing and, and mass manufacturing, we are fascinated by hand craftsmanship. Amazon recently has even taken to stepping into this uh, line of products. They have an entire wing for handmade products because we love knowing that a human soul, a human heart, a human mind was behind, their hands were behind this, making this for us. We love hand craftsmanship by artists whose name we know. And humanity is handmade by Yahweh. You were handmade by the creator, beautifully made, intricately made, not by an angel, some other spiritual being, not by a force, not by some random chaotic accident were you made. You were made by Yahweh. And then if that isn't isn't personal enough, God breathes life into the first man by breathing into his nostrils. And the man becomes a living being. The first breath that Adam ever took came from God's own breath. Throughout Genesis, We've been reflecting on some of the ancient Near Eastern creation stories about how how the world they believed was made out of divine combat and that humans were, were created to be the slaves of the gods. This is what the people around Israel believed. But here, human beings are God's masterpiece that he made to exist in intimate relationship with himself. The New Testament says you are God's workmanship. Literally, in the Greek, that text is God's poema. It's where we get the word poem for. God has labored over you lovingly and brought you into this world. The psalmist reflects on this scene in Genesis when he wrote Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You were made 
not just Adam and Eve, but humanity, you, where you sit, you were made to live in this beautifully profound and personal presence of God. The life that you were made to live is in his presence. It's a life of knowing God, a life that is crafted by God, a life that is breathed into you by the one who spoke the world into motion. But we weren't only made to live in God's presence, but God builds a whole world for his people, a whole world of of beauty and, and abundance. And so we were made to live in God's presence, but we were also made to live in God's paradise. So God just doesn't intend for his people to live. Right? Sometimes we have this mentality that like, God gives me just enough to survive. That I'm always going to have to eke my way through life. I just, need, I just need something to live and I should be content with that. Just to survive, just to live another day. But God wants his people to flourish. God wants his people to thrive. And so after God makes the man, he puts him in a garden overflowing with good things. Again, look how the story has changed. Again, remember day five of creation when he calls the the plants into existence. He uses his word. He's a transcendent God king who is declaring his royal edict and and it just happens. He says, let the earth produce vegetation and, and it's done. But here God doesn't create a garden Right? He doesn't make a garden. He plants a garden. It's, he plants a garden. Again, he's on the ground. Think of this, this creator God on his knees, tilling the soil and, and, and planting seed and watering it and bringing this garden into flourishing, bringing this garden into existence. See, when it's for his people, he's, gonna, he's going to do it with care and do it with passion. He does it with his very hands. He plants the garden, personally cultivated it, and fills the world with beautiful things. The the things specifically mentioned in this text include everything needed, not only for life to survive, but for life to thrive. So he talks about the food, plants all the trees that are pleasing to the eye and, and, and good for food, talks about the abundance of water, right? That these are these four great rivers all have their source in the river that runs through Eden, ultimately letting us know that the the source of of, of life that that water is all comes from the presence of God in Eden. Eden is literally overflowing with good things. But then he mentions the treasures, the treasures that are available in Eden, the gold and the, the, the precious stones, right? It's not just enough to get by. It's enough for abundance. It's enough to thrive. It is enough for flourishing, for prosperity, for beauty. God gives everything. And this is the world that we were meant to live in. This is the world we were created to live in. This is the world that was created for us to not just exist in, but to enjoy and to thrive. Again, the psalmist sees this abundance as being available to us. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The reason Eden is full of abundance is because God is there. 
The life that we were made to live is a life in God's presence. It's a life in God's paradise. But perhaps the greatest sign of God's goodness and abundance in this passage is the presence of the tree of life. The tree of life is a, is a very interesting uh, uh, object in Eden. We know from the end of Genesis chapter 3 that the tree of life provides immortality to anyone who ate of it. And it was there in the midst of the garden just to reach out your hand and take its fruit and eat it and live forever. And the humans were free to eat of it as often as they pleased and therefore live forever in that paradise of God's presence. The life that we were meant to live is a life without death. See, Adam had this opportunity to receive God's best and to eat from the tree of life. But according to our text, Adam never does. I don't know if he ate anything else in the garden. The text never records him actually enjoying the abundance that God created for them. The text only talks about the fruit that he ate, which was forbidden. I think this is as much a problem for us as it was for him. See, the reason we don't live the lives that we were meant to live is not only because we, f- we pursue the forbidden things, but because we don't pursue the life-giving things that God gives. It's not only wrong for Adam to go after the thing that God says no to. It's wrong for him to not enjoy the things that God says yes to, the things that are good for us. We may desire to experience God's presence, but we struggle to actually make time for him. Whether it's in the word, reading our Bibles, letting his words speak over us, or in prayer, communing with him, speaking to him, and listening to what he has to say with us in his presence, or or in worship, struggling to make time for church on Sundays. We want to experience the goodness of God in this world, but we're so often consumed by entertainment and amusement that humans have made rather than this, this, this goodness that God offers us in himself. We're so focused on the world that we make for our own joy, our own pleasure, our own satisfaction. And we know we want God's presence. We know that it's told to us in Scripture that we can have it, but we struggle to find it because we're so focused on things that are not God. And I'm convinced that we would disobey God less if we were intentional to enjoy God more. I think we would pursue the wrong things less if we were actually intentional to enjoy the goodness of God in his presence. Adam seems to ignore the fruit that God wants him to eat and is only described as eating the fruit that God forbade him to eat. And he will eventually break that rule. He chooses to be his own master. And as a result, he's cut off from the life that he was meant to live. And we, as a result, are cut off from the life that we were meant to live. Imagine a scenario where you live in the lap of luxury, you are the beneficiary of some incredibly wealthy benefactor who for some reason has decided to bestow upon you all of his wealth, 
all of his abundance, all of his goodness, his entire estate. You are invited to live on this estate, the, the, the boundaries of which you cannot find, except he gives you one rule. See this fence right here and the land that's beyond it? Don't cross that fence. That land is mine too, but you can't have it. How long would we live in that state? Having every desire fulfilled, every uh, luxury we could ever want at our fingertips, before we start to see that command as being an evidence of the benefactor's like uh, uh, vindictive heart rather than his generous heart? How long would we go until that command became our only focus? He'd given us everything and said that it was because he loved us that he was giving us everything. Why can't I have that? Why can't I go behind that door? What's he keeping in there anyway? How long would we go before we started to see that command as a prison keeping us from what we assumed to be the real paradise, keeping us from what we truly want? And because of that, we no longer feel loved. We no longer feel cared for. We no longer feel provided for. He is obviously holding out on us. See, it's tempting to think that if we had been in the garden, we would never have been as stupid as Adam. But it's a lie. We're just like him. So we don't pursue the good things that God gives, and we're often primarily concerned with the things that God forbids. And every time we choose our own way, it's like eating from our own tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we all live apart from the life that we were meant to live, and it's tragic. So we often read about Eden. And we read about the fall and we assume that we're all deserving of paradise. But unfortunately, we've been born into the wrong life because of Adam. But that's not the story of the Bible. See, we're all spiritually impoverished, desperately in need because of sin. Adam's sin, our own sin, the sins of those committed against us affect the way we experience this life and the way we experience God. And it's, it's not paradise that's been lost. It's we who are lost. The story of humanity is a quest to return to Eden, but the story of the Bible is God's quest to return humanity to himself. And this is good news because the promise of paradise in God's presence has been restored. Not to those who are perfectly faithful, but to those who have faith in the one who is. See, 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God that was breathed into that first man and made him a living being was breathed into the world once more. The Son of God became a man, became a human being, the same God who was with Adam in the garden, the God who was on the ground with Adam in the garden is with us in Jesus. And he was faithful as the New Testament calls him the second Adam. He was faithful where Adam had failed. He was faithful where you and I have failed. And although he's the only one who didn't deserve to die, 
who never ate from the proverbial tree of knowledge of good and evil, but only did what God asked him to do, did not deserve to die. He took the place that all of us belong in, in death. He took the place of death from us. On the cross, he receives the punishment that God said Adam deserved for his disobedience. And on the cross, he receives the wages for our sin, which again, scripture says is death. And so through faith in him, we are restored to the life that you were meant to live. You can be restored to the life that you were meant to live. It's a life in God's presence. It's a life in God's paradise full of abundance because it's a life with Jesus. See, in Christ, we return to God's presence. He is Emmanuel, which we'll be celebrating in Advent and Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. He is God's personal presence with you. He's the same God who in Eden wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. And so he's entered this, this filth of the world and the filth of our sin, not to condemn us or to judge us, but to cleanse us and to give us freedom. And then he transforms us like the dust of the earth in the Father's hand. He transforms us by the Holy Spirit, expertly crafting us into something that looks more like him and less like us, to look like Jesus. And in him, we return to God's paradise. Ephesians 1.3 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not just earthly treasures, not just the treasures in the garden, gold and bellium and onyx, but heavenly, eternal treasures. They belong to us because of Jesus. And because Jesus conquered death in him, we return to life. He is a tree of life to us, the power for our resurrection. And even though we will die because of sin, we will all live because of Jesus. If we have put our faith in Jesus, this life may come to an end, but your future will never come to an end. Your future has a place in God's presence, in God's paradise. Your future is with Jesus. And after the resurrection, just like God in Eden Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely a picture of what was taking place in Genesis when Jesus makes a new humanity. That by his Holy Spirit, we become something different than, than, even, than, than our sin has made us. We become restored to the humanity that God desires for us, a humanity that exists in intimacy with God because of Christ. He breathes the breath of life and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Humanity is reborn through faith in Jesus. And Jesus is remaking this world. Revelation 22 tells us what eternity will look like in a garden city, the new Jerusalem. And it's a reflection on Genesis chapter two. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Think Eden, the river that flowed through the garden. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. See, in this new creation that God is preparing for his people, God is there. 
Abundance is there. Paradise is there. We are there. And the tree of life is there, all because of Jesus, who Revelation says is the lamb who was slain, who is on the throne with God. See, we began by talking about this wealthy heir that was mistakenly raised in poverty. But I want to close by calling your attention to the other man in the story, the one who was born into nothing and was raised with everything. The truth is we can identify with both of these men. When we look at Eden, we can see the life that we should have possessed and be discouraged. Or we can look to Jesus and receive the future that we never deserved and worship. But unlike the story of two men switched at birth by mistake, the switch was no accident. It was God's plan all along to trade himself for you in order to restore you to the life that you were meant to live. Let's praise God for that together. Jesus, we thank you that though we never deserved you, you were glad to give of yourself to us. God, we recognize those areas in our lives where we struggle to choose what is good. And we pursue the things that are not. But God, I pray like the man who received abundance, though he wasn't born into it, we would experience the abundance we have available to us in Christ right now. Though there are all kinds of reasons we can make excuses for why we don't deserve it. You don't give it to us because we deserve it. You give it to us because you're gracious. You give it to us because you love us. You give it to us because you want to be with us. And so God, I pray that even now, we would experience even the very breath in our lungs as being a gift from you given to us to praise our creator and to celebrate his presence. Stir us up to worship in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.